As I said, you may or may not know a lot about the sport of rugby, but in South Africa, it's a big deal. The South African national team called the Springboks have been world champions three times since the end of apartheid in 1995, in 2007, and 2019. Of course, if I say world champions, I do feel like I must qualify that it means the winners of the Rugby World Cup competition that comes around once every four years, where you have 96 nations competing for the 20 places in the competition. When the Springboks won their first World Cup in 1995, and that is which the movie Invictus is based on, they started a tradition that is still practiced today, and they do it after every World Cup victory. They would have a victory parade through the major cities in South Africa where they ride in an open-top, double-decker bus, and they put the golden William Webb Alice Trophy in the front of this bus on display for everybody to see as they drive through the city. When this happens, hundreds and thousands of people from the Rainbow Nation will come out in celebration in the streets, in scenes of unity and jubilation and celebration as this Springbok bus slowly makes its procession through the ultimate victory march. Well, you might wonder, what does the Springboks have to do with Psalm 24? Well, the background of this psalm is the victorious procession of the Ark of the Covenant as it makes its way from the house of Obed-Edom into Jerusalem in festive celebration. And we heard about this journey before as we read 2 Samuel chapter 6 just moments ago. We also see this in 1 Chronicles chapter 13 to 16, where the Ark of God was moved from Kiriath-Jerim to the house of Abinadab, on a new cart with oxen driven by Uzzah, Uzzah and Ahio, his sons. And you will recall, as we've just heard, that the oxen stumble, and Uzzah put out his hand to catch the ark of God, and God broke out against them and struck him dead on the spot. King David was afraid of the Lord, and the ark was kept in the house of Obed-Edom for about three months. And then David got the Levites, who were supposed to handle the ark, to carry it with poles to the tent that David prepared for it in Jerusalem with sacrifices along the way. King David danced with all his might before the Lord as he rejoiced, and all Israel with him with shouting, as it's stated in 2 Samuel 6, verse 14 and 15, and with sounds of horns and singers and loud playing of harps and cymbals to raise sounds of joy, as we see in 1 Chronicles 15, verse 16. This procession, then, is how the ark enters Jerusalem. There seems to be evidence that Psalm 24 was used uh, when the ark of God would return to the city after battle and as pilgrims ascended to the city in procession for a feast or worship. So, our big idea for the psalm today is the true God wants true believers to celebrate the victory of the true Redeemer. Let me repeat that for you. The true God wants true believers to celebrate the victory of the true Redeemer. And to help us this morning to see that, we will divide our passage into those three sections, three points for the sermon. And I encourage you to take notes as we go through this psalm. Point one, the true God. That'll be verses one and two. Point two, true believer, that's verses 3 to 6, and point 3, true redeemer, verses 7 to 10. 
Point one, true redeemer, true believer, true redeemer. So let's open us our Bibles at Psalm 23. Let's open our Bibles, sorry, Psalm 24, and let's read Psalm 24 together. Please follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read Psalm 24, a Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not sway deceitfully. He will receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let's pray together again. Our Father in heaven, we know that all that we have comes from you. You are our portion. And without you, we can do nothing. Father, we pray that you will pour out your Holy Spirit in our hearts and teach us from your eternal word. And that our lives will bring glory to your name and make much of Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. You will be helped today to keep your Bible open and follow along as we progress through this psalm. And before we get to our first point, I wanted to make five uh, observations about some themes that we see here in the psalm. So just five quick observations about the psalm before we delve into our points. Observation number one, as you can see there in the heading, it is a psalm written by David. Observation number two, we see the use of questions in this psalm to great effect. These questions, by the way, are not rhetorical, but responsive in nature. So if you look down at the psalm, you'll see that in verse 1 and 2, there's a statement. And then in verse 3, there are two questions being asked. Those questions are responded to in verse 4. And then in verse 7, the gates and the doors are addressed. And in verse 8, we see a question again, which is responded to in verse 8. And then in verse 9, the gates and the doors are instructed again with the same question being asked and then answered in verse 10. So from this we can conclude that this was a liturgical psalm used to great effect to prepare the worshiper for introspection and to meet with God. Third observation is that we can see this theme of lifting up or upwards movement or change in elevation. From verse 2 where the earth is described as founded upon the seas and established upon the rivers. That word upon can be translated as above. So uh, the earth is founded above the seas and established above the rivers. In verse 3, we see people ascending the hill of the Lord, and that means going up. The holy place of God, as we heard before, is often high and should be ascended to. 
So like Moses, for instance, going up the mountain to meet with God. In verse 4, we see that we should not lift up our souls to what is false. And in verse 7, we read, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, which is repeated again in verse 9. So the clear observation here is that of ascent. Upward movement and lifting is lifting up is a clear theme throughout this psalm. Observation number four. Another theme is that of dwelling or presence. And we see that in the concept of the temple. Of course, the actual temple was not yet built when the psalm was written. David prepared a tent for the ark in Jerusalem, and the actual temple was built by Solomon a generation later. And that would have been then, in a generation's time, the normal experience for the worshiper going to the temple. So we see that the earth belongs to the Lord, and he dwells there with his people in verse 1, right? So the earth is the Lord's temple in one sense. The people ascend the hill of the Lord and assemble in the temple. They go up to Jerusalem, and they meet with God in the temple. And that's in verse 3. And we see the invitation for the king of glory to come in, to dwell with his people, right? In verse 7 and verse 9. The fifth observation is that of procession. We see the theme of procession in this psalm. Creation, as we know from Genesis 1, was not instantaneous, right? It took God six days to create the heavens and the earth. It was a process, a procession with the pinnacle of his creation, placing people in it on the sixth day when he said it was very good. We also see this procession as the pilgrims uh, 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 go up the mountain to Jerusalem for worship and the interesting questions being asked as to who will ascend the hill of the Lord. And finally, we see the procession of the gates being lifted and then the doors being lifted so that the king of glory can come in. So that's our observations about the psalm before we delve in. So with that background, let's turn to our first point, the true God. Let's read verse 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. We see that the earth in its fullness and the world and all that dwells in it belongs to God. We have a statement of fact that is explained to us. So verse 1 makes the claim that the earth and its fullness, that means the earth and everything that fills it, belongs to God. And if that is not clear enough, it goes on to state that the world and all who dwells in it belong to God. Not only everything that fills the earth, but especially the people belong to God. Verse 2 starts with the word for, and we can use the word because in its place. It explains the reason why God can claim everything as his. Because he founded it and established it. We see creation language being used here as the solid earth is described as rising out of and above the waters, linking this to the creation events of Genesis 1 verse 9. So we see the earth itself belongs to God, everything that fills it belongs to God, all the fullness or the fruitfulness that the earth and those in it produces belong to God, and all the people in the world belong to God, because He is their creator. He has full claim on everything. 
because he made it. He is their creator. He has full authority over it because he made it all and he sustains it all. More than that, the earth and everything on it is dependent upon God for its continued existence. And I'll just come out and say it, that this statement, these statements are absolute. The statement that God owns everything in Psalm 24, it is not contingent, it is not circumstantial, it is not subjective, it is not based on a certain perspective. These claims are absolute. And brothers and sisters, the world hates absolutes. The world tries its best to dethrone God, to move him out of the picture. But God is not threatened by it all. He is not hiding his claim of authority and ownership over everything. He is stating as a fact. And the implications of this for us are enormous. Think about its implication on you. Everything you have belongs to God. Your life, your spouse, your children, your house, your car, your money, your investments, your savings, all the works that your hand produces, all of it belongs to God and is dependent upon God for His sustaining provision for it. All you have is His and it is entrusted to a faithful Creator who rules this world with power and might. His sovereign grip over this universe is undisputed, unrivaled, and absolute. This is the true God we worship. By way of application, I have two things for us to consider as application. The first is we praise God for Embassy Church and its teaching here. We hear sermons week after week that has a high view of God. Listening to Pastor Phil's expositional preaching leaves us as members of the church with a biblical view of the true God. We do not hear about a small tribal deity that is subjected to forces beyond his control, and all we can do is hope for the best. We hear about the God of the Bible, the one who rules all and is in complete control of everything he has created. Nothing takes him by surprise. He is sovereign over all. This is the God of the Bible. This is the one we worship. It is the one our hearts need to hear from. The one we teach our children. And it's the one we proclaim to others. Our view of God will impact the way we see ourselves. It will impact the way we view others. The way we respond to suffering. The way we go through hardship. The way we deal with the loss of a family member. The way we work. The way we raise our children. The way we love our spouse. Our view of God matters. It influences everything we do. So my brothers and sisters, my question for you is, do you put yourself in a position to have a high view of God? Are you studying the Bible on a daily basis? Are you regular at church to sit under the authority of the preached word of God? Are you reading good books that is God-centered with others? Are you having conversations with others that make much of God and point to Him? 
Are you putting yourself in a position to have a high view of God? Second point of application is that the world rejects this God, but the Christian worships the true God. Worship is described as a response to who God is. In other words, we see who God is by studying our Bibles and hearing sermons from the Bible, and we think deeply about God, and our hearts respond in worship to God. It is a reaction to the truth of who God is. Worship is a rubber-meets-the-road reaction in the life of the Christian. It moves our head knowledge, which we've just seen is very important, from our heads to our hearts in response to God. Another way of saying it would be that worship moves theology to praise. And worship is not something we only do on a Sunday as we sing songs together, certainly not disregarding that. But the worship we are talking about here is an all-of-life worship which transcends music. It is a sacrifice of praise to God in the way we act, in the way we think, in everything that we do to seek to bring glory to God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Of course, we worship when we sing together on a Sunday morning as a church, and I'm grateful for the songs we sing here at Embassy that are filled with biblical truth. But our whole service, from welcome to scripture reading to prayer to the sacraments to the preaching of the word, it is all called a worship service. It is all as we respond to the truth of who God is. From a musical perspective, what we sing together as a church show what we believe about God. It is important. And we can sing just like King David with all our might before the Lord irrespective of your ability to hold a tune. You know, Christians sing. My family and I lived in the Middle East for a long time. Muslims don't sing. The Buddhists, they like it quiet. But the Christians, we're a singing lot. We raise powerful praise to God at every opportunity we get to celebrate who He is, to respond to what He has done irrespective of our circumstances. And that brings us to our second point, the true believer, as we turn to verses 3 to 6. Let's read those together. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God, of Jacob. Here we deal, in verse 2, the true believer, we deal with who can stand before the Lord to worship. And I think it's worth mentioning that this portion of Psalm 24 corresponds to Psalm 15, which we studied a couple of months ago. Uh, and if you would like to refresh your memory, I would recommend you go and listen to that sermon again. Uh, because it is just very good. It is the one where Pastor Phil helpfully explained to us the principle of law and gospel, if you can remember that. So this section closely resembles Psalm 15, and it starts out with a couple of questions. Verse 3, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? The first question mentions the hill of the Lord, and if you remember, the hill refers to Mount Zion, which is where the temple stands in Jerusalem. 
Remember, this question was asked of the pilgrims on their way to worship before, the, uh, before God in the temple and is intended to raise a response. Well, our psalm answers the question for us in verse 4. Who will ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So let's see who can ascend the hill of the Lord according to verse 4. Number one, one who has clean hands. That refers to the external, one whose deeds and actions reflect obedience to the commandments of God. Someone whose hands are cleaned from shedding innocent blood. And secondly, one who has a pure heart. That refers to the internal, that which cannot be seen by others. The inner attitude of dependence on God that is the motivation for external obedience. A pure heart. Thirdly, we see that we, uh, we see one who does not lift up his soul to what is false. And this refers to idol worship. To lift up your soul means to trust, to look to, to be aligned to that which is of deepest value to you from your deepest being. And this lifting up is directed, according to the verse, towards what is false. False literally means Emptiness, of no substance, vanity, falsehood. Interestingly, this phrase, to lift up your soul, we only see four times in the Bible, all of them in the Psalms. And in all other cases, it is always towards God. And we will see that next week when we turn, Lord willing, to Psalm 25. Except here in Psalm 24. Here we lift up our souls towards what is false or emptiness. Fourthly, we see, uh, and lastly, one who does not swear deceitfully, one who does not lie deceitfully, one whose word is true, who is not a deceiver of others. So we see that these categories are intended to invoke conviction, introspection, and preparation for for worship for these pilgrims. It provides an ever-increasing grip on the requirements of who's qualified to enter. It moves from outward action to inward conviction to what you are really serving and living for to the point of asking if you are, in fact, a deceiver, despite your confession as you progress towards the temple. Let's look at the second question in verse 3. It's slightly different to the first. Verse 3, and who shall stand in his holy place? So we've seen who can ascend the hill of the Lord. But here we have another reference. Who shall stand in his holy place? This holy place is on the hill of the Lord. We are talking about the temple. But the holy place is also where the ark of God was kept. And into it, none of these pilgrims will go. For all the many that ascend the hill of the Lord, there's only one who stands in the holy place. And that would be the high priest. And he would go in only once a year. And never without blood. Blood first sacrificed for his own sins. And blood then sacrificed for the people. God's people. So with these two questions we can conclude that the standard for entering is high. It is difficult. It is not the lowest common denominator. Entering is hard. It is not something that we achieve by trying our best. It requires a new heart. 
a new heart that is Godward in its inclinations. Worshippers that enter the right way receive things from the Lord according to verse 5. First, they receive blessing in that God will meet with them. They also receive righteousness from the God of their salvation. It seems like those true worshippers or these true believers receive righteousness, not from themselves, but from the God of their salvation. In other words, God has declared these believers righteous. And it seems that it would be true of true believers that they seek God, as we see in verse 6. Their seeking is described as though who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Another way it could be say, stated is seeking God like Jacob, referencing Genesis 32, where we see Jacob wrestled with God and God touched Jacob's hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint. Jacob's name was changed to Israel, which means striving with God. Jacob asked God to tell him his name, but God instead blessed him. And Jacob called the name of this place Peniel, which means the face of God. And so it is true of true believers that they seek out God, even if that seeking out is a struggle or a wrestle, rather than ease. So, brothers and sisters, that was the standard of believers, of true believers in David's day. And I wonder, where does that leave us today? What is the standard for us to be true believers? Or perhaps another way of asking this question would be, what are you trusting to come into God's presence? What is the basis of our access to God? Well, firstly, we need clean hands. That means we need hands washed by the blood of Christ, where our sins are forgiven and washed clean. Our lives should reflect obedience to God's commands. There is a consistency in the Christian's deeds and his confession, as we see in James 1, chapter, uh, James 1, verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And again in James 2, 18. But some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. True believers need clean hands. Secondly, we need a pure heart. Mark 7, 21 to 23 says, from within, from the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. The heart is deceitful above all. We need new hearts. True believers need new hearts. And Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, God says, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is God's work as the Holy Spirit changes us at conversion. We need true heart and pure hearts. Thirdly, we need to lift our souls to God and not to what is false. Brothers and sisters, our hearts are idle factories. The true believer does not have himself at the center of his being, but God. The true believer does not have his selfish desires at the center of his being, but God. 
The true believer does not have pleasure or money or comfort or success or ambition or pride or legacy or family at the center of his being. But God, the true believer, yearns for God, lives for God, desires more of God and loves God from his deepest being, from his soul. And fourthly, we should not be deceivers. True believers do not deceive others. Hypocrisy is not part of the Christian's character. You see, we can deceive ourselves by thinking because we try our best or if we try hard enough, we will be good people and we'll be saved. We can deceive others to talk as if we are a Christian, but our hearts have not been renewed. We can deceive others by secretly being the master of your ship and the captain of your soul. But we cannot deceive God. Hebrews 4, 4, 12 and 13 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Brothers and sisters, I think it is clear that we cannot be true believers in our own strength. We need new hearts, and like verse 6 says, we need the righteousness of another from the God of our salvation. The true believer in David's day was saved by having faith in the coming Messiah, the greater David, the future Redeemer. We today are saved by faith in the finished work of Jesus on our behalf and in our place at the cross. So I have two things for us to consider by way of application. First, if you are not a follower of Jesus, if you have not been saved by faith in Jesus to be a true believer, we want you to know that you are at the best possible place you can be to learn about what Jesus did for you. We are very grateful that you are here today. Perhaps you are someone that thinks that they are basically a good person. You are here in church, after all. But I hope you see from the Bible that being right with God is not something we can do. We cannot make ourselves right with God. The Bible says that all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before the Lord. We cannot, by our own efforts, come one step closer to him, the gap is infinitely great. For the unbelievers here, I think it's helpful for you to know that the Christian knows that the only way we can approach God is by being made righteous through the blood of Jesus. This happens when we realize how great and mighty and holy God is. When we realize how sinful we are, and because of our sin, we face the wrath of God for eternity. The good news of the gospel is that God sent Jesus to the world to die on the cross in the place of sinners like us. So that on the cross, God's wrath was poured out on Jesus in the place of everyone who would ever repent of their sins and believe that what Jesus did on the cross was for them. Those who repented and believed in Jesus will have their sins forgiven. And they will receive new hearts, hearts of flesh made alive by the Holy Spirit. 
that can now live for the true God as a true believer. If that is you today, I would love nothing more than to talk to you more about this afterwards. You can also approach any of the elders or perhaps speak to the person that brought you here today that you came with. I believe that there's no better question for you to consider today than whether you can ascend the hill of the Lord. A second point of application for us under this point is if true believers are to be a generation of God seekers, I think it underlines the importance of church membership for believers. Church membership is where believers covenant together to seek God together as a local church, as we see in verse 6. Church membership is the gate of the church, whereby people become part of the body of Christ when the church affirms that new members appear by their confession and their testimony to be born again. When they seek to be part of the body of Christ, to come under the authority of the elders and to commit to live out the Christian life in community with others. Church membership is helpful for the elders of a church because it identifies who they will be accountable for before the Lord. It is helpful for the members of the church to know who the church is and who can serve in the various capacities and ministries of the church. Church membership holds out a regenerate membership that is not based on common goals and interests, but unity in Christ. Church membership, as we've seen, is biblical. As we see it in the New Testament, we see the church adding to their number. We see a vote by the majority. We see the practice of church discipline. So if you are not a member of Embassy, embassy yet, and you are benefiting from the, from the ministry here, I would encourage you to become a member at the next opportunity you have for the sake of your own soul to commit to this body of believers so that we can live out the glory of Christ together. Sometimes being a member of a church is more like a struggle or a wrestle, like seeking God like Jacob. And that will happen in the life of the church because we are all sinners, saved by God's grace alone. But God will use us in each other's lives to sanctify us. By being a member of a local church, we are, as embassy, a city on a hill, a display of God's glory to the world around us, a picture of what the gospel can do in the life or the lives of sinners. And that brings us to our final point, the true redeemer, verses 7 to 10. Let's read that together. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Now that the true believers gained access to the temple precinct, they await with great anticipation for the arrival of the King of glory in this age-old fortress. Derek Kidner said of this section that David brings before us in the fewest of words the towering stature of the unseen king. This section is filled with majestic language and metaphors to describe their true redeemer. We see the anticipation for the king of, uh, king of glory's arrival 
where the gates and the doors are instructed to be lifted up in verse 7. This lifting up is associated with hope and joy for these believers that arrives with the presence of the King of Glory. So hope and joy. Now we know from archaeology that the gates and the doors of the temple were not constructed, in fact, to lift up, but a swivel on, or pivot on door sockets. So this is a metaphorical description to open up and to prepare for entry. The King of Glory is coming. The ancient doors can be translated to, uh, as eternal or everlasting doors, indicating a period that can stretch into the distant past or future. Verse 8 starts by asking a responsive question. Who is this King of Glory? And this pattern is then repeated in verse 9 and 10. To add dramatic effect and emphasis to the answers of these questions that is provided for us. So who is this King of Glory? Verse 8, the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. The language here strikes a military tone. And it corresponds with Exodus 15.3, which says, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Which is first heard in Moses' song of victory at the Red Sea when God delivered his people. In verse 10, we see the phrase, the Lord of hosts. And this is also associated with the Lord's military leadership. Another translation of Lord of hosts would be Lord Sabaoth, or Lord Almighty. We see the phrase, King of glory, repeated five times in this section. And it builds to emphasize until there is no more doubt that the Lord Almighty is the King of glory. So what's going on here? Well, there's a clear link between this triumphal entry and the history of redemption up to this point. The ascent to the hill of the Lord completes a march that was begun in Egypt and is now fulfilled in the ark entering Jerusalem. Let me say that again. There's a link between this triumphal entry and the history of redemption. The ascent to the hill of the Lord, it completes a march that was begun in Egypt and is now fulfilled as the ark of God is entering Jerusalem. God's people were slaves in Egypt, but he rescued them. He brought them out of Egypt with power and might. He defeated Egypt before them. He redeemed them. He led them through the Red Sea and into the promised land and defeated nations before them all the way to Jerusalem. God is the true redeemer of his people. And it is glorious. I have just one application for us to consider. The church is God's redeemed people. The true redeemer paid the full price to purchase us for himself. And as we gather together week after week, we celebrate his mighty work of redemption in our lives through the gospel. As Embassy Church, we are an outpost of the redeemed. And as we gather together, the King of Glory meets with us. Embassy is an outpost of the redeemed. And as we gather, the King of Glory meets with us. Or well, we should conclude. This psalm is about more than the ark entering Jerusalem. It is about Jesus. And this psalm 
points us to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said of this psalm, the eye of the psalmist looked, however, beyond the typical upgoing of the ark to the sublime ascension of the King of glory. John 1, 1 to 3 says this of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The world was founded upon the seas and established upon the rivers by Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 says of Jesus, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Not only did Jesus make, made the universe, but He sustains it. He upholds it by His word of power. Jesus, being fully man and fully God, in His incarnate nature, is the only one who had clean hands. Unlike every other human that will ever live, he had a pure heart as the sinless son of God. He lifted his soul only up to his father in heaven, and in him there was no deceit found. Jesus ascended the hill of the Lord as he carried his cross up Golgotha and died the death we deserved because of our sin. The wrath of God for our sin was poured out on him, the only innocent one. And he died and was raised from the dead as death and sin had no claim on the sinless Savior who fully paid for our redemption. Jesus ascended into heaven and stands in God's holy place as great high priest for his people. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we, we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Brothers and sisters, there is a man in heaven right now pleading for you before the Father. Jesus, as the true Redeemer, accomplished salvation for His people. And as He ascended into heaven, you would have heard the chorus of the redeemed shout once and for all, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Jesus accomplished mighty redemption for His people through His incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Brothers and sisters, those gates, those eternal doors were lifted up. They were flung open, and they have not been closed since. Those gates will close when Jesus comes back, when this King of glory returns, and then they will be shut forever. I'll close with one more quote from C.H. Spurgeon. This is what he said about Jesus, the King of glory, in Psalm 24. Jehovah of hosts, Lord of men and angels, Lord of the universe, Lord of the worlds, is the King of glory. All true glory is concentrated upon the true God, for all other glory is but a passing pageant, the painted pomp of an hour. The ascended Savior here is declared to be the head and the crown of the universe. 
the King of glory. Our Emmanuel is hemmed in sublimest strains. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, our hearts are filled with praise that you have sent us a Redeemer so sufficient that we need nothing else. We praise you that you are the true God, that you open the doors for us to be your true followers and that you have given us a true redeemer that set us free from every bondage of sin. We praise you for the great victory, for joy and for hope that can fill our hearts as we look to the, the ascended Jesus, to know that we have a representative in the very throne room who pleads for us, fills our hearts with thanksgiving and praise to you. We praise you, Lord, for your word. We pray that this word will bear fruit in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.